Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Corey, every once in a while, I will uh, take a look at where we host our podcast. And, you know, on our end, we can see like the number of downloads that we get per episode. And you and I aren't really chasing like a certain number. But it's interesting to see that some episodes have much higher downloads than others. And I think there's just certain topics that people are really interested in or get excited about. Sometimes I see those episodes that get way more downloads and I'm like, those people probably thought this was going to be a lot better than it ended up being. <laughs> well, I, the reason I bring that up is because I feel some of that on my end that sometimes, you know, there's a topic that we know is important, like we need to cover this, but we don't really get as excited about it. Um, however, this conversation that we're going to have today falls in line with a, a category that has been really fun for me to dive into. And so I'm really looking forward to us kind of re-exploring um, one of the belief systems or at least a couple of the belief systems and philosophies that shape the way that people go into collapse, how they deal with collapse. Uh, I, th I think it's a very important topic, but also one that interests me deeply. Yeah, and I always feel a little weird doing these episodes because like this stuff that I've done some research on over the course of the week that maybe I didn't know anything about before, I'm going to talk about it today from my limited perspective, very limited perspective, and yet someone may be listening who this is their entire life, right? Someone may be listening who has devoted themselves to this, and so it feels weird for me to be talking about it knowing that I'm barely scratching the surface. I'm probably making a couple of little errors here or there, right? So I just want to make it clear that like we have our limitations when we talk about this. I do find it very fascinating. And if I do make any errors, I hope that I get corrected. So with that, we have had a couple of episodes where we have talked about different philosophies. We've talked about nihilism, stoicism. We've briefly mentioned some others. But we thought it would be good today to touch on a couple that I have heard people mention in the collapse sphere before. They're ones that they use for their own coping or something that they've grown up with or, or just f helped them find peace in their lives. And those are Eastern philosophies. 
Now, there are multiple of these. Um, we're only going to touch on two of them today. We may do a second part later on where we touch on some of the others. But the two that we chose to talk about today are Buddhism and Taoism. Yeah, and just as a quick reminder, you might think, like, why would we talk about these in the context of collapse? And I mentioned that I feel like this is very important within the context of collapse. Part of the reason is because collapse is a result of of the actions of people and the systems that people have set up, right? And people's beliefs are what guide their actions. And so understanding beliefs and people's belief systems helps paint the picture of like how we got to where we are today. In addition to that, as we head further and further into collapse, these kind of philosophies and belief systems are what will shape how people respond. And many of our listeners are looking for a way to better respond to all the stress that they're feeling as they see all the things happening in the world. And so like stoicism, nihilism, some of these that we've talked about, it gives a whole framework of like principles and methodologies for coping with challenges. And I think it's also just worth recognizing that a large share of human beings that will be going through collapse are already clinging to these philosophies, these beliefs. And so if collapse generally is trying to understand what we should anticipate from the future, knowing an aspect of of the human side of it and how humans will respond is going to help us get a clearer picture. Perfect. Well said. You know, I'll note that as we've gone through these different philosophies and sort of scratched the surface and tried to learn as much as we could, I have found something great in each one of them. And I may never fully, you know, subscribe to one of them and commit my whole heart to that one philosophy. There have definitely been some that I've gravitated way more towards. For me specifically, it's been stoicism. But there are pieces of nihilism, for example, that I think are really valuable. Some of these topics that we've done research on today as well. So as you're listening, even if you think, oh, well, like this piece of that, like I don't agree with that or that doesn't sit well with me or I could never do that. That's fine. You don't have to disregard the entire philosophy. It's great to to gather the parts that are good and put together your own personal philosophy, whatever that may be. But anyway, with that, let's go ahead and start, Kellen, with Buddhism. And have you share, you know, a bit about what you researched this week? Great. Well, as you mentioned, you know, me doing several hours of research on this, I I can't even begin to scratch the surface when you talk about people that dedicate their whole lives to this. And so I'll do the best I can, but I don't think there's any way to accurately or adequately at least summarize an entire uh, philosophy or belief system. But... I have such a deep respect for Buddhism. And part of the reason for that is because I've seen the way it has really benefited a family member of mine. You know, it seems like recently, uh, you know, here in the United States, there has been a big uptick in like the adoption of Buddhism and, and Buddhist principles. You know, as people are dealing with like mental health issues, uh, they're starting to turn to mindfulness and meditation and a lot of the practices that in large part originated from Buddhism. And and that can be debated where they came from, but it's a big part of Buddhism. But like I mentioned, you know, there's one family member of mine in particular who was looking for something to help with all of the stress and anxiety that he was facing. He found Buddhism and it has been life-changing for him. So one thing to know is that like some scholars don't recognize Buddhism as an organized religion. They they talk of it more like a way of life or a spiritual tradition. Buddhism, you know, as claimed by Buddhists, is a religion, but not in the same way that many Westerners see religion. Like Christianity by comparison has more rules and regulations and is more focused on giving specific answers about like why things are the way they are and what comes next. There's often more like very specific rites and ceremonies. 
where without trying to minimize Buddhism, much of it has, has more to do with like how you think and practices, you know, for, for how to cope with challenges and overcome suffering. There are multiple branches of Buddhism. You know, sometimes it's broken into two, sometimes it's three. The two that are often mentioned are Theravada and Mahayana. And there are significant differences between those branches, just like how you would look at Christianity in much of the Western world. And you would say, you know, there are so many different subsets and groups. And one group of Christians might practice their religion in a totally different way than another. But what I'll share here is just kind of the general principles that you'll find across Buddhism. First of all, I'll note that it's the world's fourth largest religion. About 7% of the world falls under the category of Buddhists. And it originated about 2,500 years ago. Wow. And as you can imagine, anything that started about 2,500 years ago is going to have a lot of different versions, you know, as people tell the story. But at least one version is that about 480 BC, a prince was born. His name was Siddhartha Gautama. Um, he lived in what's now modern-day Nepal. And supposedly, there was a, a prophecy about this prince becoming a spiritual leader. His father, the king, kept him in the palace and wanted to shield him from basically all human suffering. He didn't want him to be exposed to any kind of discomfort. So he he had everything he wanted and more, kind of this life of luxury if there are any servants that were like sick, they would be removed from the palace. So he he basically wasn't allowed to see sickness or like advanced aging or even death. He had everything, you know, materially that anybody could ever want. Uh, he was married to a, a beautiful bride, but he felt really dissatisfied. At 29 years old, He's allowed to go outside of the palace. And when he does, he sees suffering. He sees sickness. He sees old age. He even sees death. And he has this big existential crisis. At one point when going outside of the palace, he sees a monk who seemed really wise and happy. And so he said, I'm going to abandon my life as a prince. I'm going to give up all these material things. That's the route I'm going to go. He ends up joining this group that does like really intense meditation and really intense fasting. Supposedly, he spent six years with them and like they're in the forest. They're basically starving. And the only things they would eat are like these seeds that would blow into their lap. But he found that like his mind was clouded, probably because he was so hungry. He wasn't getting the answers he was looking for. And so he realized the path to enlightenment is somewhere in between the two extremes. After this realization and after getting some food, I don't know how much later, he goes and sits under a tree. They now call it the Bodhi tree. And he, he determined, you know, he kind of vowed there that he would find the answer to life's suffering. He was going to meditate until he was able to figure that out. So he's there for days and then he has this big awakening. Essentially, what he realized is that it's our desires that cause our suffering. It's because we want things to be different than they are that we suffer. And, you know, things always change. And, you know, everything that people desire, it's typically like possessions or power or they don't want to die, right? They want to hang on to life. But everything that people are chasing after is all temporary. It's not going to last. It's going to change. And change always happens. It's inevitable. And so if we can rid ourselves of our desires and just accept and love those changes, we can reach this level of enlightenment. You've probably heard the term nirvana before. Right. And so he became an awakened one, a Buddha, 
supposedly the first like Buddha, the first enlightened one of the modern era. And he was filled with just so much like love and joy. And it came from that state of Nirvana where he had distinguished all his wants and desires. Yeah. It's funny. It reminds me of some advice I was given when I got married and they said the secret to a happy marriage was to have low or no expectations. Just reset your expectations, get rid of them completely. <laughs> it's kind of sad advice. Yeah, but I mean, really, when you think about any disappointments or unhappiness that we have in life is generally, you know, apart from legitimate suffering, our unhappiness can come from just improper expectations. We think things should be better, and when they're not, it disappoints us. But this idea of much of our unhappiness coming from just not getting what we want and sort of the solution being, well, don't want so much, I mean, it's logical and it makes sense. Yeah, I think you're right. And and what Buddha did is he kind of created a guide, a framework, so that others could become enlightened. So... What he taught were these four noble truths. And the first truth is just the truth of suffering. Like this recognition that life is suffering. Everyone in life is suffering in some way. But the second truth is understanding the cause of that suffering, which, like we just talked about, it's coming to a deep understanding that suffering simply comes from desire. The third truth and by the way, there are names for each of these truths that I can't pronounce. <laughs> sure. But the third truth is the end of suffering. Like that it is possible to stop suffering and achieve enlightenment. And then the fourth is like how you get there. It's the path to the cessation of suffering. So that path is an eightfold path. And you can kind of outline them as steps, but they're not meant to be steps in like a sequential order. It's more like eight spokes of a wheel. So I'll step through those quickly because I think it's important to understand like, okay, if we want to achieve enlightenment and achieve that state of nirvana, which by the way, it's not a place. Like it's not, it's not like heaven and hell. It's a state of mind. And another thing to understand before I step through these is the idea of karma. That's a Buddhist principle. Basically just the idea that whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Like your actions, and especially your actions, you know, determined by your motivation, is going to set off a, a chain of events that will kind of come back to you. So if you do actions of kindness, like in some way or another, that goodness is going to come back to you. But if you're doing things that are greedy or evil that's going to that's going to get back to you at some point but that's not to say that there's like anybody who's making the judgment on that it's more like a natural law it's like gravity it's not like a transactional exchange where someone's like all right so we owe this guy seven bad things to happen and four good so let's make those things happen it's just a it's a sort of cosmic natural force i guess yeah, exactly. There, there's not like a judge who's dishing out rewards and punishments. It's just the natural consequences of your actions. There's also this belief uh, that we're in this kind of endless cycle with no beginning and no end. And after this life, you know, this life is a time of suffering. <laughs> then you die and then you're reborn into another life. You can't remember the previous one. And then you experience suffering again, you die, you're reborn into life again. And the only way to escape that cycle that goes on and on and on forever is to achieve enlightenment. And it, I don't know if you know what's next. Once you've achieved enlightenment, do you cease to be or do you continue being somewhere else? Yeah, I actually did spend some time looking for that answer because I had that same question. And I couldn't find it. You know, in some branches of Buddhism, there's a belief that there are certain individuals who have achieved enlightenment, who have decided to stick around so that they can 
help others get to that point. And so much like, you know, in, in Catholicism, somebody might pray to these saints to help them on their journey. There are these individuals in Buddhism. They're not like gods with a capital G. They're just these, these beings that can help them along the way. But yeah, in terms of what's next after advancing outside of that cycle, I don't know. I've heard some things that are kind of interesting um, around this idea of kind of like the way that a wave from the ocean is distinct. You can recognize that like it's defined as a wave. You can measure it. Uh, but when it crashes, it's still there, but it just goes back to being part of the water. Anyways, somebody out there might know the the answer if there is certain doctrine among Buddhists about what happens after enlightenment. But it, it seems like, again, contrasting it with something like Christianity, Buddhism isn't trying to give those answers. There's not an emphasis on saying, like, here's why things happen the way they do. It's more of an acceptance of here's how it is. Which, obviously, from our perspective, looking at this as, a, you know, collapse coping mechanism or, or you know, looking at it as, as a way to better deal with our reality doesn't really matter (laughs) the answer to that question. But uh, yeah, I just was curious. Well, those eight spokes to the wheel, right? That as you're trying to reach enlightenment, the path to that, there's having the right view, which basically just means accepting those four noble truths that we talked about having the right thought. That's all about, you know, making sure you don't let negative thoughts cloud your mind, right speech, you know, the, the the words that we use, making sure those are positive and good natured, right action. And this is interesting because these aren't like commandments. They're more, I guess, guidelines, but you, you could frame them in terms of like moral precepts. And there are some specifics here, five in particular, like don't kill living things. Uh, don't steal or, or take what's not given to you. You know, there's there's prohibiting of sexual misconduct, particularly from what I understand, sexual action that's not consensual. Also lying and the use of drugs and alcohol are a couple of things that are prohibited. But when I say prohibited, again, that's tough because these aren't commandments. It's more of, again, when you think in the context of karma, the kind of actions that you should be putting out in the world and that you shouldn't. Okay, the, re- the remaining of the eight, there's right livelihood. So you should avoid jobs that involve exploitation of any type. You, you should earn your living in an ethical way. And that can expand outside of just like your occupation. The right effort, putting effort into creating good thoughts, pushing out bad thoughts. There's the right mindfulness, which is all about being present, experiencing what's going on now, avoiding distractions, kind of being aware of what's happening with your mind and body, and the right concentration. And that's something we'd refer to more as meditation, where you're you're focusing on a single thing, a certain thought, or you're focusing on your breathing or whatever it is, kind of laser focused. There's so much here. And again, I'm just trying to very inadequately give a brief summary But generally speaking, if you really want to start with Buddhism, some of the core principles, one is that nothing is permanent. Like change happens. We shouldn't fight it. We should embrace it. Another is that life is suffering. And again, those four noble truths, we can recognize that suffering really comes from our desires and there is a way to overcome that. The one that's been particularly interesting for me to learn a little bit about is this idea that there is no self that, you know, once you reach a state of nirvana, you stop thinking of me or I, like you have compassion for all things. I mentioned this family member of mine who, you know, Buddhism has helped him dramatically. And at one point I went to lunch with him and he was explaining a few of the things that he had learned One of those is an example he gave where he said, like, let's say you pick a fruit from a tree and you begin to eat it. 
And he was trying to make the point that like, at what point is it no longer the fruit and instead it's you? And at what point is the fruit no longer the tree or is it still part of the tree? And even the air around you and the wind as like you're consuming that while you're eating this apple. And, and at what point is the tree not technically the earth? And as he stepped through this, it was this whole idea that like everything is connected. Every It's this whole interdependency, this whole network, this web. And we can't really identify ourselves as something separate from the universe at large. And so as we love others, we're loving ourselves. As we love ourselves, we're loving others. You stop thinking of yourself and this concept of self. And instead you are just filled with like this absolute compassion and love for all things around you. So I'll just, with that, I'll just share that I think Buddhism is incredible. I think it has helped a lot of people. Um, it's interesting because you can be like a Christian Buddhist. You can be, Buddhism is so modular that it kind of fits with almost any other belief system. It's not exclusive because there's no declaration of like a certain deity and there's not necessarily like a defined doctrine outside of some of these principles. It can be adopted very widely. The more I've been learning about it, you know, I did the research for this episode, but like I said, I've been learning about it in the past uh, from this family member of mine. And I'm convinced that like if everyone in the world adopted Buddhism, the world would be a much better place. I love that it's so centered on like goodness, kindness, compassion, helping others, reducing the amount of harm you're doing to other people and to the planet. I love that it allows people to be in even tough situations and kind of reach beyond themselves, get past their own desires to the point where they can still experience pain, but there's not suffering associated with that pain. There's so much peace with Buddhism. One thought, uh, you know, kind of a, a phrase or a saying that comes from Buddhism that I think is really interesting is, if you want to know about your past life, look at your present body. If you want to know about your future life, look at your present mind. And this discipline to having like the right thought and the right mindfulness and the right concentration and the right and the right actions like it's a way to just make sure you live a good life and get beyond so much of the turmoil that this world tends to be about. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ah, thank you, Kellen. That was fascinating. Um, it's hard to find fault with a philosophy that is just genuinely about helping others, being kind, compassion, all, all those wonderful adjectives that you use to describe um, what it takes to reach a state of nirvana. It's interesting to think about the state of the world, uh, to think about our economic systems. And you know, one thought that I had while you were talking about that, when you were saying if everybody in the world was Buddhist, it just struck me that nothing would be the same, right? There would be no capitalism because there'd be no need to increase one's profit. There'd be no exploiting others, right? Because like you explained, a whole tenet of the belief system is to have a livelihood 
or to, is to have the right livelihood. It's also interesting that there are so many people who claim to be Buddhists. Like you said, 7% of the world. I wonder how many of those 7% really take that to heart. You know, I wonder how easy is it to live that way in today's world? Many of them live in a different part of the world, but I assume that it's challenging to be, or I should say, I assume that the higher the standard of living, the more difficult it becomes to live this type of lifestyle because you have access to more. Yeah. And one thing, as you mentioned that, it just made me think of, there's this idea that like desire fuels suffering the way that wood fuels a fire. Like the more that you feed it, the more desires you give it, the more it will consume, the more it'll just always be asking for more. And like the only way to kill a fire is to stop feeding it, which means like we need to change what we want, not what we get. But going along with what you just said, especially for those with a, a higher standard of living, you know, how do you separate yourself from that? Right. Those who have access to more, how do you reject that? How do you not feed the desires when it's so easy to? You know, how do you not indulge in two day shipping from Amazon Prime and having access to stream anything you want anytime you want and, and, and just all the things that we have access to. And as we kind of grow older, oftentimes that may come with increasing incomes as your career matures, which comes with access to more and more and more. And I mean, I looking at myself, this is definitely a weakness, right? It's easy to want more. It's easy to want to be more secure. It's easy to want to, you know, you think about like uh, preparation and, and preparing oneself for hard times in the future. And anyway, it's difficult to completely think about others and to forget yourself. Will I ever reach a state of nirvana? Most likely I don't have the self-control to do it, but it sounds like an amazing journey. And as I mentioned before, any piece that you can take from from this, right? Any bits that you take from these philosophies will be beneficial. Great. Well, you heard me talk a lot about Buddhism. And as you heard, I it's hard for me to even say anything negative about it. But with that, maybe let's shift it over to you, Corey. Teach us a little bit about Taoism. Perfect. So Taoism, it's also referred to as Taoism in the West, started roughly the same time as Buddhism. The timeline that you gave of, of about 2,500 years ago holds true for Taoism as well, around 500 or so BCE. Now, I have to say that I'm going to be pronouncing some names uh, of people, of books, of ideas, and these are Chinese names, and I will likely get them very wrong. I will do my best, uh, but don't be too harsh on me. So, the founder of Taoism is said to be Lao Tzu. So Lao Tzu, and whether or not Lao Tzu actually existed, was a real person or not, is disputed. Many scholars say that it's more of a, a legendary figure. But it's said that he wrote sort of the main texts of Taoism, one of which is called the Tao De Jing, and the other is the Zhuangzi. Though it's also said that there is probably more than 1,400 different subtexts that have been pulled together to make the overall books. Now, these texts, they're mostly from like sayings, kind of like, you know, in Christianity, like proverbs that have been put together and over thousands of them make up what the overall philosophy is. But Taoism comes from the word Tao which literally means way or like the road. It's basically the path. And the whole goal is to live in harmony with the Tao, which they say is basically the source of everything. It's the ultimate principle underlying reality. It's referred to as a lot of different things, um, the cosmic creative power, subtle universal phenomenon. It's the natural order, the spontaneous nature by which things happen. The Tao is sort of believed to be, it's, it's a force. It's a cosmic universal force. And I've seen a lot in my research of references to this idea that Star Wars 
was meant to be based on Taoism and Yoda meant to be Lao Tzu. So it's like this idea that you're supposed to become one with the force. Um, you know, in Taoism, there is sort of this yin yang, the light side and the dark side. So anyway, that's, there's lots you could go into with the comparisons there. We won't. Hey, but already now it makes way more sense to me. Right. There's that, there's entire books that have been written. Um, apparently there was one book where they, they went through, I think it was through the Tao Te Ching and they replaced the word sage with Jedi and they replaced the word Tao with the force. And apparently it was just like remarkable. Like it was, it was basically just Star Wars. <laughs> but as far as the beliefs, uh, much of Taoist beliefs are to simplify life, to go with the flow, to live frugally. There's something called Wu Wei, which is sort of the main idea that I'll talk about here. And it has a lot of different meanings. Some of them um, are effortless action, which we'll go into a little bit more non-action, spontaneous action, among a bunch of others. So to describe effortless action, which sounds a little bit like an oxymoron, they also call it action without thought. Basically, if you imagine a river, water flowing down this river, you're just going where the Tao takes you, right? Rather than trying to fight against it, to swim against the current, to choose a path, or to try and dictate which way you're supposed to go. Instead, you just go with the flow. It's the literal phrase we hear all the time, go with the flow. It's effortless action because you're not exerting effort in getting to your destination. You're letting nature take you there. You're still moving forward, so therefore an action is being taken, but it's not taking any effort on your part. Now, it's not about laziness, right? But it's about being one with nature and allowing it to choose your course. I also saw a lot of comparisons to Winnie the Pooh, saying that Pooh is a great embodiment of Wu Wei. <laughs> because Pooh is just so carefree, and like he just takes things as they come. Um, there's also a book comparing Pooh to Taoism. And I laugh at that, because it, it just seems so silly. Uh, but... In in you mentioning that and me laughing about it, I hope it doesn't like trivialize Taoism, right? For for those that adhere to its principles and take meaning from it, it's just so funny the way that people like adapt pop culture to almost anything. Yeah, for reals. But I also think it's it's a handy sort of example, a visualization to kind of understand what they're talking about. So maybe sometime I'll have to to get those books and check them out, see some of these comparisons and, uh, you know, see how I can reflect that type of attitude and being in my own life. So some sayings from Taoism. So one saying from Taoism, they say, The sage manages his affairs through non-action and conveys his instructions without speaking. And the form of non-action that's described there is sort of the ultimate way for people to handle their own affairs, um, for governments to handle affairs of their people, for parents to teach their children. Regarding government, Taoism is actually used as a political philosophy to encourage small and non-violent governments. A Dr. Karen Lai, who's a scholar of Taoism, says in one of her books, an ideal Taoist government refrains from using force and domination violence and weapons as they prevent the people from becoming spontaneous. Basically, the idea is for governments to protect people from the government itself while also keeping people free to live from the imposition of artificial conformist norms. So um, this part is from an interesting YouTube video I watched on it. But basically, this idea that, you know, a Taoist government would try and liberate people from having to conform to what we've created artificially as a society, right? Instead of requiring them to live by specific norms that we also created as humans. They're not natural. It's not this normal part of the universe. We created capitalism. We created the nine to five, you know, that type of thing. So the Tao is a natural force while societal norms are all man-made. And we see that conflict today. Like, 
in the U.S., if you try and break away from societal norms and live outside of it, like it's illegal. You can't do it. You get in trouble. If I don't want to live a consumerist, capitalist lifestyle, number one, I just can't make it. I can't survive unless I'm literally being taken care of by someone else who is living that lifestyle or by the government itself. And if I try to break away from those norms and live on my own, that's also forbidden. You know, there's actually a case of a guy it's in the last what year or two, I think we've talked about him once on the podcast. Basically, he had been living off of the land for years, I think even decades. But eventually he was found out and got in trouble because every piece of of land is owned by somebody. You're not allowed to be really on any land. I mean, whether it's public or private land, there's rules and regulations that dictate what you can do on it. So unless you enter into some legal binding, you know, rental agreement or or own your own piece of land, whatever it is, what you're able to do is being dictated by somebody else. So the Zhuangzi, which is one of the texts, speaks of it more, uh, it being Wu Wei, as non-mind or non-emotion. So it's talking, it's kind of similar to Stoicism. This idea that we do things subconsciously, and that's the way that it should be, not necessarily do things based off of reaction or being influenced by our emotions by what other people are doing or what our situations are. A piece of that is something they call non-action. So basically not changing our course of action in order to avoid an obstacle, which is interesting to me. So a metaphor there is, again, using water flowing down a river and how that water doesn't move out of the way of a boulder. It doesn't see a boulder coming and divert its course. It also doesn't try and move the boulder out of the way or remove it somehow. It flows over the top of it. It flows around it. But it also continues moving forward without stopping. But what's interesting is that they say that by doing so, eventually that water steadily running over that rock erodes it away until it's no longer an obstacle at all. So the idea being if you move the natural way that the Tao dictates, you'll achieve the proper end result. And then along with that, they also talk about not striving. So we talk about going with the flow and not striving is this ability to get where you want to go without going against the grain or fighting against the current letting the natural consequences, letting that natural order take you there. They say strive for nothing and yet obtain what is needed. So again, it's just this idea that like the path for you to get where you should be isn't maybe the one that you think it is, isn't the path that you decide. If you become one with the Tao, if you go with the flow, you will eventually end up where you're supposed to be. That makes me curious from a practical standpoint, I'm trying to think of of how you would actually do that. And maybe it's because I'm just so locked into the way the world is and, like you said, capitalism and all these things. But I just think, how do you ever get anywhere or accomplish anything? How do you provide for yourself if you don't have a certain outcome in mind that you are like putting effort toward? that effortless action and kind of going with the flow and just winding up wherever you're supposed to be is hard for me to wrap my mind around. And I don't know that it so much means you shouldn't have like an end goal, but more that like once you've maybe got your course set, like you know what the end goal is, not overreacting or reacting to every obstacle that gets in the way in the course of that. If you're one with the Tao, if you're one with nature, if you're flexible, if you're agile, if you're humble, that eventually you'll make it. And I agree. In practicality, there are some questions, you know, I would, I would need to spend more time for sure, uh, diving into, into this to have, I think, satisfactory answers to that. Now, there is one story here that I think gives a good example of reacting to circumstances. So the story goes something like this. Basically, a family loses their horse, which to them is an extremely valuable asset. So the neighbors come over and offer their condolences. The father of the family tells the neighbors not to offer condolences because they don't know that this happening may not actually turn into good luck. 
Months later, the horse returns with a whole herd of wild horses for the family to tame. The neighbors then come over to offer their congratulations. The father again says not to concern themselves with whether it's good or bad because bad could still come out of it. Lo and behold, in time, one of the sons in the family falls off one of the horses and breaks his leg. More bad luck. Then, the next year, nomads storm the land and all those who are able go off to fight and end up dying in the battle. The boy who broke his leg was unable to fight and stayed home and lived. So there's this back and forth of good fortune and bad fortune. Uh, but the father in the story is saying, no need to react to this as c- celebrating the good luck or offering condolences for the bad luck because we don't know what direction this is headed. We don't know where it's going to go or what the consequences of this will be, but we trust in the process. We're one with the Tao and we'll get where we need to be. The idea being there's no way to know what the future holds. Uh, fighting against it by trying to anticipate every little thing and change your course of action, it goes against the Tao. Now, frankly, it's a bit deterministic. You know, they have this idea that like we're here to fulfill what the Tao has in store for us. And being too well planned out or, you know, making these changes, it could alter our path sort of artificially. And they even say that could lead to an early death. So to me, that part gives me some anxiety, like this idea that every action that I'm taking, like, am I doing this with the Tao? Am I being one with the Tao? Or is this just a personal desire that I'm, you know, going against the grain on? And is that going to kill me early? Like, to me, that that would be too anxiety inducing, I think. But I do like this idea of going with the flow, right? That mentality of not letting every little thing set you off emotionally, not letting yourself become um, having overreactions to things and even having a neutral outlook on the things that do happen to us. I want to be able to celebrate the good things that happen to me. Sure. But I do like the idea of being able to say like, things suck right now, but it could be this way, even if not for a reason, but it could have a positive outcome. It's a bit of a change of perspective and allows me to think outside the box a little bit and not be so intent on commiserating every little bad thing that happens to me. Another way of looking at it, uh, they call it natural action. And again, that can be sort of compared to the difference between a reaction and a reflex in humans. So you think about a reflex, it's a natural unconscious reaction to a stimulus It's emotionless. It happens spontaneously. Whereas a reaction is a choice. It can be over-exaggerated. It can be learned. You know, when you're at the doctor's office and they tap your knee and your knee just in the right spot and your knee bounces out, right? That's not a choice. It's a reflex. It's an unconscious action your body takes. And so they're saying, let yourself become one with the Tao so that your choices and your actions are subconscious reflex rather than everything being calculated they hail the virtues of passivity of flexibility of humility and of willingness to accept change you know similar to buddhism there's this idea that change is inevitable it's always going to happen we don't know why that change is happening but success comes from being open to that change willing to again embrace it and not fight it. Well, of each of the, you know, philosophies that we've focused on, Taoism is is the one that I probably knew the least about. So that was really interesting to learn that from you and, and from the research that you did. And important to note, again, that Wu Wei that we spoke about here, that's one aspect of Taoism, right? And there's there's so much more to go into. For the sake of time, we'll just touch on that sort of central idea I don't want anyone to think that I just gave a full presentation on everything Taoism. Yeah, for sure. And the same thing with Buddhism. I've just touched on a couple of things, a few highlights. The one thing that keeps crossing my mind is that with all of these different philosophies we've touched on so far, there are really interesting similarities. I look at nihilism and, you know, there's different branches of that. But this idea that, like, you get to decide the meaning that you assign to things that whatever 
is being taught or whatever messages you're receiving, you, you kind of get to step outside of that. And I look at stoicism and this idea that like you get to control your thoughts. Your mind is the way that you experience the world. So you get to decide which emotions you feel like are beneficial and which ones are not. And the circumstances that you see around you, you decide how you want to interpret those. You know, these aspects of Buddhism where you embrace change, you just accept that. You understand that suffering is a part of life and you detach yourself from desires. And when you talk about Taoism and this kind of go with the flow, let things happen, don't don't necessarily assign judgment to an event like the guy with the horse that ran away. He's not going to say, oh, that was good or bad when this thing or that thing happened. It happens and you kind of just embrace and accept the changes. So much of it to me is this whole underlying principle of resiliency. And it's people finding different ways to be resilient. Each one's a different lens through which to look at the world. In every one of them, it's like you're not focusing or worrying about things that are outside of your control. Really, it comes down to what's within your control yourself and how you view things and what meaning you assign and what actions you want to take. And something about that feels so important as we talk about collapse, because we're talking about these big, scary things that are happening in the world, very negative circumstances. And there is a degree of helplessness. Like those are things that are outside of our control. I can't just go fix the financial system. I can't stop climate change. I can't stop any of these big things. The only thing that I can do is control what's within my control, which is me. And so I love that these each give kind of a different framework for doing that. And I think there's room in the world for all these different philosophies and beliefs. And if people will be deliberate about them, it can help us all navigate the scary path ahead of us. Yeah, really well said. This is not the last of these episodes that we'll do. It's really fun exploring these different things. I have mentioned before, and I still stand by this, that in the future I would like to speak with people who live by these and get more practical ideas about how they apply it in their lives. We do have people reach out and say, hey, you got this wrong about this philosophy, at least the way that I live it, it's different. And I think it would be cool to to view what some of those practical applications are, especially in reference to coping with the world as it is and and as it's going to become. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.